Down beneath the deep blue sea, where one day I chanced to be, the mermaids gave a very swell affair. I looked out from my submarine at the queerest ball I'd ever seen. Not a soul on earth I knew was there. Of course they did the tango and no one made a slip. Of all the guests assembled there, each one could do the dip at the mermaid's fancy ball in Father Neptune's hall. The little eels were pickled and they did a naughty wiggle. Although it shocked a few old crabs, it made the bluefish giggle at the mermaid's fancy ball. One thing about the Harlem Renaissance that often gets left out of the history books is that it was very queer. But don't take my word for it. As Henry Louis Gates Jr. put it in a 1993 essay, The Black Man's Burden, the Harlem Renaissance was surely as gay as it was black. Indeed, in Harlem to even be in the famous crew of the socialite Alelia Walker, you had to be accepting of bisexuality and homosexuality. Especially because Walker was known for her huge parties where people of different genders, races, and classes mingled, and where the marriages of lesbian women were celebrated. Why the Harlem Renaissance was so queer is a matter of debate and speculation, as is usually the case when we're talking about times and places when LGBT luminaries seem to magically congregate. A possible answer might lie in the forces that made the appearance of so many influential black artists, writers, and intellectuals in Harlem in the 1920s and 1930s possible in the first place. In the southern United States, the Reconstruction following the American Civil War led to African Americans being elected to local and state offices. Less than a decade after slavery was abolished in the United States, an ex-slave was elected to represent South Carolina in the House of Representatives. The slow progress was cut off with southern states enacting the oppressive Jim Crow laws and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Meanwhile, in the islands of the Caribbean, still controlled by the British Empire, blacks were disillusioned with the discrimination and oppression they experienced under British rule in spite of British rhetoric about personal liberty. This especially came to a head when black soldiers volunteered to fight in World War I, only to still endure government-sanctioned discrimination while they were not even sent to fight in Europe alongside white British soldiers. These forces coincided to inspire a large black migration to the United States, as people who can afford the cost of packing up their lives tend to be, these migrants from both the Caribbean and the southern United States were mostly but not entirely from middle-class backgrounds, well-educated, and more politically assertive and radical. This would be the fuel for the Harlem Renaissance. But what does being gay have to do with it? Well, maybe it wasn't so much that many of the stars of the Harlem Renaissance just happened to be queer, but that they, because of their backgrounds, understandably felt more free to put their true selves forward and experiment with their identities. 
Gladys Bentley's mother was part of this exodus, originally hailing from Trinidad and moving to the northern metropolis of Philadelphia, where she gave birth to her daughter Gladys. But Mary and her American husband George were very much part of the working class. According to Gladys herself, as a child she was bullied by other children because she was overweight and simply odd. Even her own mother was cold to her because Gladys believed she wanted a son, not a daughter. Girls were more trouble than they were worth, at least according to Mary Bentley. Much later in life, Gladys Bentley would reflect, It seems I was born different. At least I always thought so. From the time I can remember anything, even as I was toddling, I never wanted a man to touch me. Soon I began to feel more comfortable in boys' clothes than in dresses. Late in life, Bentley would recall when her feelings of attraction to women began, even if she didn't realize their importance at the time. Writing about her elementary school teacher, Bentley said, In class, I sat for hours watching her and wondering why I was so attracted to her. At night, I dreamed of her. I didn't understand the meaning of these dreams until later. Unfortunately, her mother seems to have glimpsed something that troubled her about her daughter. Her parents even took her to various doctors. Gladys would claim that her father and mother meant well, but they just didn't know how to cope with a situation which was to them at once startling and disgraceful. Like so many gay performers throughout history, Gladys took what made her feel alienated and created a powerful persona out of it. At the age of 16, she left home for New York City. There, she unabashedly made for herself a public image as a bull dagger, 1920s American slang for a butch lesbian. Over the course of the gay 20s, sorry, I couldn't resist the obvious pun, the first gay and lesbian bars were emerging in America's biggest urban centers, and certain neighborhoods became havens for people open about their love for the same sex. In New York South Village, for example, a Polish-Jewish lesbian immigre, Eva Kochever, opened Eve Adams Tea Room in 1925. A sign on the front door read, Men are admitted, but not welcome. Convicted of disorderly conduct and obscenity, Eve was deported to Europe, where she would go on to fight in the Spanish Civil War and sadly became a victim of the Holocaust. But that's another story. While Eva was far from the only owner of a gay bar to suffer persecution, underground speakeasies catering to lesbians and gay men actually spread in spite of the authorities. After starting her career performing at private parties, Gladys honed her singing act at one of them, the Clam House, an underground speakeasy that catered to both Harlem's best and brightest and the Manhattan elite and which also had a loyal clientele of gay men. Gladys had an amazing knack for making up blues lyrics to tunes from the popular songs of the day on the spot, in a powerful, distinctive voice. But what really caught audience members' attention was how Gladys loved to perform in a suit and top hat. This was only natural, since she also often dressed in drag in public. In her essay, How Does a Bull Dagger Get Out of the Footnote? or Gladys Bentley's blues, scholar Regina V. Jones even theorized that Gladys 
directly influenced Emile Drag and Josephine Baker and Marlene Dietrich's acts, although Regina admits it's impossible to prove one way or the other. But I wasn't the only transgressive part of the act. She would sometimes perform, accompanied by backup singers who were men in drag. Her songs themselves were sometimes lewd and risque parodies of classic blues songs and popular show tunes. She also sang original songs, some of which frankly spelled out her lesbianism, but she did not dare release these particular songs on her records. Fearlessly, she flirted openly with women in the audience, and in her personal life, she shared her apartment for a time with a woman named Beatrice Robert. There were, of course, moralistic critics of her act and persona. On April 7, 1934, a critic at the Chicago Defender called her the masculine-garbed, smut-singing entertainer. Still, her popularity and her acceptance in the world of the glitterati spoke for itself. Besides Harlem Renaissance and luminaries like Langston Hughes, her audiences included Cary Grant, Frances E. Williams, Mary Astor, Bruce Cabot, J.P. Morgan, and the future King George VI of Britain. Off the stage, Gladys walked around New York in men's clothing with her girlfriends. She even claimed she married a white woman in Atlantic City in a public ceremony. However, the identity of the woman, if she ever actually existed, has never been uncovered. While Gladys enjoyed success both as a performer and by selling records nationally, she eventually did leave New York City. As the Harlem Renaissance waned and prohibition caused the decline of the speakeasies where she made her career in the first place. It didn't help that her act had gotten so notorious that the New York police closed down the clubs she performed in. Instead, she went all the way across the country to Los Angeles, where she moved in with her mother. She continued her act at a number of nightclubs with gay clientels across Southern California, including Mona's, the United States' first openly lesbian nightclub. Unfortunately, Gladys would not be spared the chill of the more reactionary era following World War II. By the end of the 1940s, Gladys had to request a special permit from local authorities to be able to perform in drag. Not long after that, she had to perform in women's clothing no matter what, or risk getting arrested or having her venue shut down. The U.S. House Committee on Un-American Activities which always gleefully associated homosexuality with communism, even investigated Gladys as a suspected communist. Why? Not because she was ever a member of the Communist Party of the United States of America, or because of political views she publicly expressed, but simply because of reports that she was in a same-sex marriage. Times were certainly changing from the more permissive 1920s and 1930s, and unfortunately, Gladys felt she had to change with them. After all, her mother was ailing and depended mostly on her income. So Gladys only dressed in women's clothing and cleaned up her lyrics. She even took an extreme and very public step. In the August 1952 issue of the African-American magazine Ebony, an article penned by Gladys titled, I'm a Woman Again, 
was published. In it, she claimed she had been cured of her homosexuality by taking estrogen and had entered a happy heterosexual marriage. Yet she also spoke frankly about the tremendous loneliness and persecution she suffered as a result of being gay. Gladys wrote, Our number is legion and our heartbreak inconceivable. Society shuns us. The unscrupulous exploit us. Very few people can understand us. Indeed, even though Gladys described being a lesbian as a hell as terrible as dope addiction, and claimed, I cannot but vehemently condemn and denounce those who defend deviation. The first part of the article is nonetheless an eloquent, if somewhat contradictory, plea for empathy. In fact, Regina V. Jones and others have argued that I'm a woman again, rather than being an act of penance, was Gladys just playing another role. As Regina puts it, the only thing she doesn't do is wink at the reader. I tend to agree, not least because the man she claimed to have married, theater critic J.T. Gibson, said he never married her. Curiously, the same year the article in Ebony was published, she actually did marry a man, a 28-year-old cook named Charles Roberts. They divorced before too long. The motives behind the marriage to Charles, like a lot in Gladys Bentley's life, and whether or not Gladys entered a marriage for actual romantic reasons or just to back up her claims to have been cured, remain a mystery. What is sure is that Gladys Bentley was not actually cured of homosexuality. At this time, a columnist visiting Gladys at home for an interview remarked on two pictures she had. She casually replied, Oh, that's my husband, and that's my wife. Her public maneuvers, however sincere or insincere they were, salvaged her career from even the puritanical 1950s. In 1955, for example, she was a very well-received guest and performer on the hit game show hosted by Groucho Marx, You Bet Your Life. And Gladys continued releasing albums nationally. And Gladys continued releasing albums nationally up until 1953, as far as I can tell. Yet, she was still ready to embark on a shocking career change as the 1950s drew to a close. She had joined a new Los Angeles church called the Temple of Love in Christ, Incorporated. First as a member of their choir, but she started studying to become a minister. Sadly, though, before she could finish her studies, she died from pneumonia at the age of 52 in January of 1960. If she had lived just a few more years, she would have seen the pendulum swing back again toward greater personal freedom for people like her. Nonetheless, she still left behind a strong and still celebrated model for anyone who feels the need to fearlessly reinvent themselves. <laughs>